the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Well, welcome back. As we head into hour two, we were talking a little bit in the last hour about some of the, um, what would you call it? I guess, I guess some of the unnoticed oppression, some of the, 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 the clouds in our atmosphere that prevent good public policy outcomes, clouds that are created by and fed by the left. They create an atmosphere that is impermeable almost, that makes it extremely difficult, insuperably hard to make positive public policy changes. And we were talking about it a little bit in the public health context, but a little bit in the education context, a little more in the education context in the last hour. Barton Swain over at uh, the Wall Street Journal, S-W-A-I-M, Barton Swain, <clears throat> someone worth re- reading. My, my, uh, I don't know him, and I, I don't think – no, we've never had him on. Otherwise, I'd know him better. But I have found that he's one of these writers that when he's good, he's great, and um, not every column is good. But when he is good, he is great, and he nails it. And it's, of course, hard to hit home runs all the time as a writer as much as it is as a radio host. You just, you know, what do they, what do they say most great uh, baseball players do? They, they hit, uh, what, like 200 or something like that? Three, 300? 300 is a great number for a baseball player. 300, yes? You can't hear me anyway. Yes, I'm getting the thumbs up. 300 is a great baseball player. That means you're missing 7 out of 10 balls. Okay. Barton Swain, this this column over the weekend was really good. The American left's fantastic threats. Think about these clouds that have shaped our atmosphere. President Bill, excuse me, President Biden's reelection announcement video warned that, quote, MAGA extremists are lining up to repeal bedrock freedoms, close quote. Uh Uh-oh. What freedoms? The extremists plan on, quote, Dictating what healthcare decisions women can make, banning books, and telling people who they can love, all by making it more difficult for you to be able to vote. Close quote. That's a salvo. <laughs> That's a lot. As Barton Swain writes, it was a perfect expression of the paranoid state in which American progressivism finds itself. Now, that's an interesting phrase, paranoid state. We've talked before about the um, Richard Hofstetter thesis, the paranoid style in American politics. Um, this, this paranoia has always been leveraged against conservatism. And indeed, Hofstadter's thesis was about the Goldwater candidacy and how, you know, the kinds of conservative philosophies Barry Goldwater was talking about were the expressions of a paranoid population. Uh, now it's the left that's paranoid. But you might even argue by virtue of progression, the Hofstadter and the idea that the Goldwater campaign and movement was a movement of paranoiacs was really the shoe on the other foot. It was projection from the left. They were just talking pretty much common sense American founding 
type classical liberalism in those days. It's also amazing, too, what a touchstone, when you think about it, what a touchstone that sort of conservative revolution of 1964 ended up becoming, how much came out of the criticism, the worry, the concern of Goldwater's campaign, and how much we still have reason to talk about it, including what the left discovered they could do, which is slander and libel candidates with the worst form of epithet, as we've talked about that they did to Goldwater back then. Anyway, sorry to uh, to divert on that. Uh, as Barton Swain puts, it was a perfect expression of the paranoid state in which American progressivism finds itself. Leave, leave aside for a moment the line about dictating what health care decisions women can make, a euphemistic reference to abortion. <clears throat> the other threats on Mr. Biden's list— banning books, telling people who they can love, and voter suppression are literally non-existent. Mr. Biden isn't engaged in the time-honored political craft of exaggeration. He's seeing things that simply are not there. Liberal commentators have been ridiculing conservatives for feeling, fearing negligible or non-existent, non-existent threats for as long as I can remember. Communist infiltration during the Cold War, Islamic extremism in the 2000s, illegal immigration in the 2010s, gender ideology in the 2020s. The right might or might not have exaggerated the urgency of these problems, but they were or are problems. That isn't the case with an array of issues Democratic politicians and progressive intellectuals are exercised about in 2023. You often feel they're so invested in the idea of a delusional right that they can't perceive their own penchant for draining up non-existent threats. Mr. Biden is worried about book bans. We've heard a lot about book bans. The American Library Association recently claimed in a report that 2,571 books were challenged in American libraries last year. These challenges the Library Association calls attempted book bans, nearly all of which involve nothing more than a request by a patron that a public library or school library remove a book from its shelves because it is obscene or otherwise offensive. Okay? That's what we are hearing are book bans. A member of the public suggesting or telling a librarian they wish a book weren't on a shelf. It's actually an attempted book ban, and sometimes the libraries comply, and sometimes they don't. All we get is the gross figure, 2571. Swain writes, I'm not sure such requests are are improper. Young adult fiction has become sexually avant-garde and shockingly coarse over the past two decades. Anyway, to ask that a taxpayer-supported library not facilitate children's access to a sexually explicit book isn't to ban it. An interested patron may buy it and read it in public if he wishes As I've said, you can get any of these books on any of these purported bands delivered to your home by close of day via Amazon and in most bookstores. Made that point again and again and again. These aren't bands. In most cases, they're moving from a young adult shelf to an adult shelf, or it's a request by a patron saying they don't think the book should be there. And that's ratcheted up into a number of almost 3,000 book bands, which are non-existent. Further, back to Swaim, as Micah Maddox notes in his substack of April 26, 
There are 117,341 libraries in the United States, 76,807 of which are public elementary and secondary schools libraries. Okay, so the majority of public libraries are actually public school libraries. Some books are challenged multiple times, Mr. Maddox explains. Others are challenged once. How many unique books and resources were challenged last year? 2571. How many challenges were filed in total? 1,269. If, as seems likely, some libraries reported several challenges, that means less than 1% of all libraries receive even a single challenge. Less than 1% of all libraries receive even a single challenge. Other organizations, particularly PEN America, assert that local and state governments are eagerly banning books, typically those of female, black, gay, and transgender authors. All such statements engage in the verbal leisure domain, that means sleight of hand, of defining as a ban any request that children at a public institution not have access to books about sex. On this issue, by the way, one of the most fascinating things to do is whenever anyone brings you a book that they say is subject to being banned or has been banned, go through it. Go through it. Or ask them to. When Ron DeSantis went through the list at a public, at a public hearing, the media had to cut away. The media had to cut away because they could not legally broadcast that which he was reading from. Think about that for a moment. Back to Swain. This strange urge to tremble at the presence of imaginary beasts is accompanied by an astonishing lack of self-awareness. The closest thing to real book bans in the U.S. today is perpetrated by precisely the sort of people who bewail book bans. Major publishers have canceled books by authors ranging from J.K. Rowling to Senator Josh Hawley because they ran afoul of progressive sensibilities. Amazon refuses to sell Ryan Anderson's book, When Harry Became Sally, a measured and serious critique of the transgender movement. Ryan Anderson is the head of a major think tank, okay? And Amazon won't sell his book. In 2021, the American Booksellers Association sent out paperback copies of Abigail Schreier's Irreversible Damage on the same subject. Activists targeted the Booksellers Association, and the trade group issued an obsequious apology for the alleged offense. ALA and PEN America say nothing about these true book bans. Let me go through another of these clouds when we come right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Over the break, David and I had a little contretemps. I've been doing my best to acculturate you. Yes. With movies and other things. And now I think I need to work on humor. What you think is funny might not actually be funny, and I may need to help you with that. Okay, okay. By the way, you told me you recommended a movie to a friend this weekend that he saw. Yeah, I showed my roommate Live and Let Die for the first time. He'd never seen it. I've seen it many times. I grew up watching James Bond, but he had never seen one of the classic James Bonds, and it was on Amazon Prime, so I showed it to him. Well, there's a lot in there, including the idea that Roger Moore constitutes classic James Bond. 
I would say that the, the it's more. Yeah, maybe it's debatable. It, Once you hit Timothy Dalton, then it's more uh, then it's uh, then yeah. it's all avant garde. Yeah. All right, debatable, debatable. But yes, fair enough. Seventy one, seventy two, somewhere in there. Seventy three. Seventy three. There's yeah. so much in there. Yafet Kodo. Yep. Great actor. Um, he died about a year or two ago. Interesting guy. Played Idi Amin, was in Homicide, Life on the Street. Oh, he was in that great movie, Midnight Run. He was the FBI agent, Alonzo Mosley or something like that. I don't know about that one, but have you seen the He was one? also an Orthodox Jew. Did you know that? No, I had no idea. That's, yes. that's astonishing. Yeah. Have you seen uh, Across 110th Street with him in it? No, worth it? Yeah, I would say so. Okay. It's a, well, you know, it's a 70s cop movie, so it's kind of cliche many yeah. times, but he plays a real hard case. There's a guy in there who makes an, two appearances. He makes an appearance in another movie. Uh, he's on vacation with his wife. Kind of looks like uh, Jackie Gleason. Uh, Jackie oh, Gleason. Sheriff J. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> he's in two James Bonds. Yes, he's in the he's in the following the sequel. That's yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, Jane Seymour is the Bond girl, I believe. Yes. And, yeah, easy yeah. there, solitaire. Um, we get the Corvarado. Which is the Eldorado Cadillac on a Corvette body, right? Mm-hmm. And we get the Seven Up commercial guy, right? Whatever his name is. Whatever his <laughs> name is, the guy who did those Baron Samady. Yeah, yes. the, he did those. Those. Yeah, it's a little. It's a little different. It's a little occulty, right? It's a little odd. It's a oh, little it's, freaky. It's, it's weird. It's uh, a different a James like Bond. Yeah. There's a lot to like in it. There's a lot to like. This in was, it. Uh, as I understand it, they made this as a response to the ever-growing popularity of what we call black exploitation. Yeah, sure. Seventies. Sure. Yeah. Sure. It's a little freaky, though. I mean, it, all that occult stuff gives have, has always freaked me out. Yeah, it's it's a little weird. But I'm glad yeah. you're doing with your friend what I'm doing with you, showing them Exposing movies. Exposing him to good things. Yeah. yeah, yeah, movies they need to know. Mm-hmm. Have you progressed on that front since The Graduate, by the way? Have you, for example— It's in, only been like five days. That should be five movies. Oh, yeah, you know, I, I just have to go home and sit out on my couch and watch, watch Jaws. Let's forget dinner, laundry, making the bed, and everything we, else. Everyone else it. does it. <laughs> this is like people who say, I'm sorry, traffic, when they were late to work. Like, what, did everyone else helicopter in to get there on time? <laughs> yes, everyone has laundry, young David. Everyone, everyone has dinner to make, young David. Everyone has things, and yet they still have time for recreation. Yes, and some of my recreation is swing dancing. Cultural so literacy. <laughs> Cultural literacy is what we're talking about. Please make it Jaws. Oh, yeah. Sure. We have so much to talk about on that movie. And then I'll give you another round of movies. And, once then, you'll, you and then you'll give me more homework. Yeah. Do you think this is hard homework? Oh, gosh. I, I have so much homework. Movie. I have to watch the movie Jaws, <laughs> said no one ever. Yeah, it's it's great homework. I enjoy it. Barton Swaim's column about what I'm calling clouds the left sends into our atmosphere that make it hard to see the light, hard to see things clearly, and hard to effectuate public policy, hard to win elections. We were talking about this myth in the previous segment about book bans and how non-existent they are and how they fudge those numbers. The president, Swain writes, also noted as a justification for his re-election, MAGA extremists wishing to tell people who they can love. That's all in quotes. That's a reference to same-sex marriage, which the Supreme Court legalized nationwide in Obergefell v. Hodges in 2015 and which faces no political resistance. One assumes Mr. Biden was alluding to Justice Clarence Thomas's suggestion in a lone opinion last year that the court should reconsider its reasoning in Obergefell, which was rooted in a doctrine called substantive due process. 
the idea that one statement by one justice about an abstruse legal subject signifies a mass political movement aimed at rolling back same-sex marriage is a species of madness. A certain variety of conservative may wish there were such a movement, but there isn't one. Mr. Biden is seeing things or inventing things, and so is the entire firmament of the left. What about those MAGA extremists, quote, making it more difficult for you to be able to vote? The non-existence of observable voter suppression has been demonstrated many times in this newspaper and elsewhere, the newspaper being the Wall Street Journal. But two recent data points are worth remembering. In January 2022, Joe Biden characterized a Georgia election reform bill as Jim Crow 2.0 and likened its supporters to George Wallace, Bull Connor and Jefferson Davis. Remember that? Whose side do you want to be on? Uh, George Wallace, Bull Connor and Jefferson Davis or who I forget who the good litany was. Martin Luther King, Abraham Lincoln and Frederick Douglass or something like that. Oh, oh, no, it was um, it was the congressman. uh, the civil rights uh, marcher congressman who passed away recently from uh, South Carolina, who am I thinking of? The guy who rescued Joe Biden's campaign. I'll think of it in a minute. Remember who I mean? You know who I mean. John. Anyway, doesn't matter. Huh? Lewis. John Lewis. Thank you. Yes, John Lewis. I'm getting good at this lip reading thing. Um, the law passed, okay, this law that was considered to be Jim Crow 2.0 or was sold by the left as Jim Crow 2.0 in order to defeat it, did pass. And in the midterm elections later that year, more black voters cast ballots than before the law. A subsequent University of Georgia survey found that 0% of black voters reported a poor voting experience in 2022, whereas 72% of black voters said it was excellent, the same as white voters. Yet the president names voter suppression as a reason for his candidacy in 2024. Right-wingers of a cynical mind. That John, that John Lewis thing was so important. That Boy, did they milk that thing so much. Remember they were saying his dying wish was to defeat that law? And, boy, they really used that man. They really misused that man. Anyway, and this issue of race. Uh, Swain, right, right-wingers of a cynical mindset will insist that Mr. Biden and the Democrats are deliberately manufacturing these threats. I'm not sure. I tend to think the impetus is some mixture of short-term opportunism, a post-religious need to fight righteous causes, and genuine delusion. Two years ago in these pages, I suggested that modern liberalism had reached a stage at which all of its major goals had long since been accomplished and that today's liberals, now defensively called progressives are on a thus far ineffectual search for new policy aims. What I didn't appreciate then was the degree to which this teleological exhaustion impels the political left to perceive threats that aren't there. This is an important psychological point I want to get to when we come back. We'll be right back. Threats to our financial freedom and stability are growing. Russia, India, Brazil, Saudi Arabia, and China, as the list grows, are conducting international trade in local currencies, not the U.S. dollar. Rising interest rates and bad loans are exposing the banking system, causing failures. The Biden administration is sending hundreds of billions of dollars abroad while depleting our strategic oil reserves and ignoring crumbling infrastructure here at home. However, the biggest financial threat may be coming from within. 
Central bank digital currency is real. The patents have been filed, and the big banks have released plans for implementation. The vets at Midas Gold Group see devastating implications. The end of cash, the end of financial privacy, big government able to see your every purchase. Could there be ties to social credit? Own private currency, gold and silver. Now, get free silver just for asking Midas Gold Group how you can use your retirement to own physical gold. Call Midas Gold Group today at 480-360-3000. That's 480-360-3000. Or check them out online at MidasGoldGroup.com. David, you know, we do talk a lot about movies, and you, you're a big movie like you. I am. I wonder if the audience might like to – we keep threatening to do a version of this. If it might be fun to do books, too. Talk about books that we need to read and maybe do it together. Oh, that would be cool. I don't like mean sitting study. next to each other and reading together that way. I you mean, mean you won't read to me? No, I won't read to you, but you know what I mean. Like, we kind of assign ourselves Along a book. Along with the audience. Yeah, yeah with the yeah, audience, and then we can have a yeah. like Friday book discussion or something. Or would this just not work and be terribly boring? I don't know. I don't know. You know, we'll have to ask the audience what their thoughts are yeah. on like, Plato's Menno. Well, <laughs> I wasn't thinking that. I mean, I could do that, but I don't think that. I'm thinking more like The Great Gatsby. Oh, yeah, for sure. American icon. Yeah, or or just great literature that maybe we didn't read growing up and kind of think we need to go back to and read or we'll reappreciate again if we read it now. You do appreciate with these great books. You know, part of me thinks I worry about this with education. I worry while I want children to be, of course, challenged and I want them to aspire I do sometimes worry that by some of these reading assignments that we do give to children at too young of an age turns them off of it, and that it's a worry I have. It's an it's a delicate balance. I get worried about young people too. You do. I, I get, but not about the reading or the reading. Well, I you know I think it's all related. I think a lot of it is an education problem yeah. that we have in our country, as we've been talking about earlier in the show. Yeah. But you know, I, I just get worried that people maybe don't connect the dots as yeah. well as maybe they used to. Recently, like what? I've seen young people, you know, when we talk about great, you know, public social initiatives, things like that. We recently had, you know, talk in this town about bringing a lot of business to Tempe. I talked yeah. to a lot of young people about that. Yeah. And unfortunately, that didn't go our way. Yeah. But uh, they. Oh, like I, the coyotes thing and yes, that sort of I thing? Saw, yeah. I saw the prevailing attitude weeks before that happened. Yeah. And I knew that it might not happen. Yeah. And the reason, because, you know, the people, the residents of Tempe, the ASU crowd, yeah. you know, that I talked to, yeah. they didn't get it yeah you know when i talked to them they said well why would we ever want to do this you know yeah. what we need to do is take that money and work on you know homeless issues and yeah. they said oh we have plenty of jobs that are yeah. over on the other side of the city yeah but they don't want those jobs yeah. they say that we need to uh clean up the streets well how are we going to do that without yeah so you're worried you're worried buying? about the priorities of i am worried about young of young people's priorities and you know, of the young what, people that i don't think they're Connecting the dots, yeah. if you will. And I think a lot of that has to do with education. Yeah, because we, we're not teaching what's important. We're teaching what's fashionable. Mm-hmm. That's one thing. Uh, was there, I'll come back to that with you in a moment if you want. But just out of curiosity, was there a great classic piece of literature that you particularly liked or that you got a lot out of? Is there one book that you will take with you the rest of your life kind of thing? For me, it was The Great Gatsby, by the way. Yes, actually there is. And uh, I did read this one at a younger age, fifth grade for me. It wasn't assigned reading. It was personal David Dahl's reading, Yeah, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. 
Oh, Jules Verne. Mm-hmm. You know, that personal reading thing is so important. I want to say something about personal reading, actually. Uh, and this is a message for parents. So one of the things that in the, in the foundations of education excellence and how to achieve it, what we noticed in the NAEP report from last week was that not only were children not doing their work at home when COVID, when schools were closed due to COVID, their personal reading time went down too. You would have thought that would have maybe had const, held constant, but it didn't hold constant. It dropped dramatically. It, we talked about it in our monologue, the kind of reading you said, people reading on their own for pleasure. That is such an important part of it. I'll say something about how important that is. Because you can make up at home for the deficits you think you might be getting at school. And I want to say something about that now that you brought it up, Dave. I'm glad you did. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. I was making a point uh, in the previous segment with you, David. Yes. That based on what you were saying about, you said one of the most rewarding books and pieces of literature you will carry with you your whole life was never was not one that was assigned to you, one that you kind of picked up on your own. Exactly, yes. 20,000 leagues. The importance of this is so critical. So one of the things we learned in that nation's report card last week is that um, when when schools were closed for COVID and we saw all these scores drop, one of the things that we looked at, what NAEP, the nation's report card, looked at was how much time students, children were reading on their own, non-assigned reading. And that had declined too. Uh, you wouldn't think necessarily it would, but it did. You wouldn't think necessarily it would because you might think that you know, children were just going to not do their classwork or their schoolwork, but they still would read for pleasure. But see, what ha- what has happened here, and these declines have been happening over time, they just dropped precipitously during COVID. Reading begets reading. Interest in reading begets, begets interest in reading. And we were talking in the previous segment, too, about, unfortunately, our education system is today focused on what's fashionable, not what's good, not what's true, what's not proven beneficial. The fundamentals of educating a child have never really changed since biblical or platonic times. They have not. And the research on almost all of it still bears itself out. Secretary, Education Secretary William Bennett uh, put out a report when he was secretary called What Works in Education? And it, every, all, nearly everything in it still holds true. So let me let me read from that report on reading. The best way for parents to help their children become better readers is to read to them, even when they are very young. Children benefit most from reading aloud when they discuss stories, learn to identify letters and words, talk about the meaning of words. The specific skills required for reading come from direct experience with written language. At home as in school, the more reading, the better. Parents can encourage their children's reading in many ways. Some tutor informally by pointing out letters and words on signs and containers. Others use more formal tools, such as workbooks. But children whose parents simply read to them perform as well as those whose parents use workbooks or have had training in teaching. Isn't that interesting? And by the way, all of this has its research behind it. 
uh, citation. The conversation that goes with reading aloud to children is as important as the reading itself. When parents ask children only superficial questions about stories or don't discuss the stories at all, their children do not achieve as well in reading as the children of parents who do ask questions that require thinking and who relate the stories to everyday events. Kindergarten children who know a lot about written language usually have parents who believe that reading is important and who seize every opportunity to act. Now, that's one part of it. Let me take the next serious part of it, the one that uh, young David was evidencing. Children improve their reading ability by reading a lot. Reading achievement is directly related to the amount of reading children do in school and outside. Independent reading increases both vocabulary and reading fluency. Unlike using workbooks and performing computer drills, reading books give children practice in the whole act of reading. That is both in discovering the meanings of individual words and in grasping the meaning of an entire story. But American children don't spend much time reading independently at school or at home. Research shows that the amount of leisure time spent reading is directly related however, to children's reading comprehension, the size of their vocabularies, and the gains in their reading ability. Clearly, reading at home can be a powerful supplement to classwork. Parents can encourage leisure reading by making books an important part of the home, by giving books or magazines as presents, and by encouraging visits to the local library. Another key to promoting independent reading is making books easily available to children. Children in classrooms that have libraries read more, have better attitudes about reading and make great gains in reading comprehension, that greater gains than children in classrooms without. And, 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 and do it at home. Now, David, what attracted you to read that book, and what about that book is so lasting to you? I couldn't say what attracted it to me this far removed from it. My parents may have How bought it How old were you me. when you took I, it on? In fifth grade. Uh-huh. Yeah. But what I so, so what? much you're enjoyed 10? about you're ten, it, around 10? I, I, yeah, I think around 10 or yeah. 12. Yeah. About you weren't 12. I, I don't. You weren't 12 in the fifth grade. No, <laughs> um, Let's say 10. Let's okay. say 10. All right. All right. I, don't know. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was really drawn to the, uh, the figurative language. Yeah. And I mean, there are great sequences of that book where they're trapped under ice uh-huh. in Antarctica. And, you know, as I was reading that, it was probably the first book that I, that I read and really felt the same as the characters. You know, as I'm reading it, I'm short of breath, running out of oxygen. What am I going to do? And, Perhaps this isn't the most timely of things to be reading right now. Um, but uh, I was so drawn to that. And it led me to uh, read more of what I believe people call either the, uh, the Science Trilogy or the Journey Trilogy, uh-huh. which are his two other big known ones, uh-huh. Journey to the Center of the Earth right. and The Time Machine. Right. And uh, I read all of those, I think, in fifth grade or thereabouts. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was just so so drawn to it, the respect of... Uh, science, yeah. the great understanding. I mean, that. Did is, you memorize parts of it? Maybe long ago. Yeah. Not that I have still yeah. plugged up. In That's my an head. interesting yeah. exercise to do, too. You, would it be a really good inter- exercise for you to go back and read them now that you're an adult 10 mm-hmm. years later or however old later? I'm not allowed to ask than, yes. whatever it is. That's why we call you young David. I know you're older than 20, but. Um, <laughs> not <by> much. <laughs> uh, so yes, my point is it might be interesting to go back and read them again and rediscover them. You'll discover new things. Mm-hmm. I promise you. I promise you you will. I mean, this was early science. I've done that fiction, with a lot of books. And we lately. think of it as antiquated. Yeah. 
But talking about nuclear-powered submarines yeah. in the 1880s, yeah. that is science fiction. <laughs> yeah. Anything but. I mean, we're still, we're still drawn to these adventures, aren't we? I mean, this is what the whole uh, journey to, find, to see the Titanic was about mm-hmm. yesterday. It's why the Titanic even still looms so large in our, in our collective conscience, too. Something that happened how long ago? 110 years ago? When was the Titanic? Something like that, right? Nineteen. I'm uh, thinking it was around, yeah, yeah. somewhere around 1911 or something like that. It still draws so much of our uh, – anything like that does. And by the way, for parents, tips for parents, uh, depending on the age probably – but yeah, these adventures, adventure stories to imaginary places, that, you know, like the stuff Jules Verne was writing about, or space, stories of space, they capture the young mind in a way that doesn't just require, um, because in part they're real, that doesn't require just the J.K. Rowling stuff, you know? It doesn't just – remember when the vampires thing was such a big deal oh, for the kids? Twilight All that yeah, stuff, yeah. interesting in its own way. But, you know, we can do with the real stuff too. Jules Verne I, I, I think was probably a million times better than anything the vampire in the Rowling series could do. We just stopped giving – we just stopped doing Jules Verne and they hadn't seen that kind of stuff in a long way. And J.K. Rowling comes along and Harry Potter becomes famous. I know it yes, hit me sir. the other day. What? We don't have much time left Go. in the segment. but. Frankenstein? Yeah. We think of that as such a, you know, science fiction yeah. and pseudo horror yeah. and all that. 1831. Yeah. 1831. I know. I know. I know. And look how many Dr. Frankensteins there are now creating monsters they can't control like Fauci. We'll be right back. I just added this song to my running playlist. For the second half of my run, for the negative split. We can talk about that, too, if you guys want to. But when you think about the economy right now and the bank failures and the possible recession, the inflation that's not transitory and the stock market's volatility, where do you go to invest? Why Refi has an answer. They have an investment in a portfolio with a high fixed rate of return that's not correlated to the stock market or the Fed. It's a portfolio where you can turn your monthly income on or off. You can compound it, whatever you like, with no loss of principal if you need your money back at any time. There are no fees in the secure collateralized portfolio from Y-Refi, and they're based here locally. I encourage you to stop by their offices on Scottsdale Road in the 101. I've been there, and I can tell you you will not get a sales pitch, and no one's going to ask you to sign a thing. When you meet with the team at Y-Refi, you'll see why I like and trust them so much, and you can too. Y-Refi is a due diligence proof firm. You can earn up to a ten and a quarter percent rate of return. That's right, a ten point two five percent fixed rate of return. Check them out at investyrefi.com. It's the word invest, the letter Y, then refy.com, or give them a call at eight 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 Y refi thirty four eight 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 Y refi thirty four. You know, I didn't put a um, uh, finish on that Barton Swain column about these fantasies. Factitious, uh, you know, factitious fantasies of the left. I'm using the word factitious as an invented concept that they invent these concepts that just are not based in reality, Um, and and they go on these entire tears that serve at once to animate their base 
and two, to marginalize us, whether we are challenging and want to challenge, get in the way of who people can love, whether we're banning books, whether we're suppressing votes, none of it, it's all delusional. It just doesn't exist in our movement. It doesn't. And Barton Swing says the Trump years were in one sense a hallucinatory parade of horribles, a series of existential threats that didn't exist. Donald Trump's election itself was supposed to be a harbinger of authoritarian government or even fascism. More than a few highly credentialed observers were sure they saw brown shirts marching down Pennsylvania Avenue, right? Anyway, be wary, be attentive to, and be prepared to challenge what it is that the left and the media think you believe, because they do think you believe in all these things that simply don't exist. We call that a delusion. I'm Seth. We'll be right back. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs> 